We are ready for 1 Peter chapter 4 today. So open your Bibles if you have them to 1 Peter chapter 4. If you don't own a Bible or have a Bible, we want to give you a Bible. We want to make sure that you have one. There's some loaner Bibles. If you don't have one, keep it. That's our gift to you. If you have a Bible and you just didn't bring it today, you can drop it back off um, on the table on the way out. Toby, Mike's in the back. They'd be happy to bring one to you if you need one and you're not too embarrassed to raise your hand and tell everybody else in church that you don't have a Bible. It's okay. We'll love you anyways. That's, that's what we're called to do. Some of you guys will break out your phone and um, use your app on your phone. That's good too. You'll go to like partially to heaven if you have a phone app. Um, you'll, you'll go to like that middle heaven that... Never mind. <laughs> hey, I, I, I came across... Let, let me uh, digress just a little bit before we get into First Peter today. Um, a good preacher would have figured out how to just fit this in the sermon. You wouldn't have known any better. I just would have found a way to tweak it. And that's what my wife tells me anyways. But, um, but I want to share with you an article that I read in churchleader.com magazine this week um, that I just thought was interesting and thought-provoking. So I wanted to share with you some of the thoughts um, in this article. And the, 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 the title of the article caught my attention was, What, what do non-Christians think about Christians? Well, what is the average? What would the average non-Christian say about us, about you, about me? And so, um, this one particular ministry um, over the years has um, done thousands of interviews with non-believers, um, trying to gather this information and trying to come up with um, better tools to effectively witness to non-believers and to help equip Christians and saints to share their faith with non-believers. And so, he came up with with seven of the most common answers or versions of the answers that he heard. And some of them are, are to me, were, were very uh, thought-provoking. So I'll share them with you this morning. Number one thing that non-believers say about Christians, or that in this, in this particular study, it says Christians are against more than they are for. It just seems to me Christians are mad at the world and mad at each other. So they are so negative. They seem unhappy. I have no desire to be like them and stay upset all the time. So I think that's fair, right? Now, now that's fair of, of some Christians. That's why I tell you, don't be that Christian, right? You don't want to be that grumpy Christian who's mad all the time about everything. Now, we're not, we're not going to become flowers and, and not call sin, sin and wrong, wrong. And, and we're going to continue to stand for what the word of God teaches, regardless whether it offends you or not. But at the same time, there, there is that idea, that, that Christian perspective that some of the world sees that just is mad, all, that we're mad all the time and all the things that we're against. So somehow we got to get the message out what we're for. You know, my, my father-in-law... Um, has served the Lord Jesus for 40 years of his life, uh, pastors a large church in Southern California, has um, been a tremendous and amazing part of mission works all over the, all over the world, has, has a, an orphanage in Africa, um, has one in the Philippines, has just given his life literally to serve God and is just for Jesus. And, he, and he's been involved in um, changing lives and marriages and people coming off drugs and what God has been able to do through his life and his ministry of just serving Jesus has been phenomenal over the last 40 years. And he gets interviewed by a newspaper and the newspaper article wants to know what he, what he feels about homosexuality and wants to write an article that he says it's, it's, it's a sin to lead a homosexual lifestyle. And nothing about what he's for and all the positive that he's given his entire life to love and serve people, but this is the one issue they want to talk about. Like, can we talk about what the $200,000 that they're pouring into um, Africa and seeing little lives who, whose both parents have died of AIDS at four years old and, and how these kids' lives are changing and they're coming to know Jesus and their you know marriages are being healed. But no, they don't want to talk about that. So anyways, that wasn't part of the note there. I don't know. All right. We can't preach through every one of these. I just wanted to read them to you. All right. Number two, this is what they're saying. I would like to develop a friendship with Christians is what some non-believers said. They said, I am really interested in what they believe and how they carry out their beliefs. I wish I could find a Christian who would be willing to spend some time with me. So, so some non-believers say they want to spend time with, with Christians. They just don't really have the opportunity. So that's good to know, right? You know, the Bible says that, that iron sharpens iron. So as Christian people, um, the, the, the wisdom of God is that you take two Christians and if you put them together, both um, the analogy is they're both iron. What happens if you take two pieces of iron and you rub them together? 
they get sharp. What happens if you take a piece of iron and a piece of wood and you rub the iron against the wood? The iron becomes dull. And so that's the, the analogy the Bible gives. The non-believer is, is represented as wood or something other than metal that, that dulls the iron. And so we as Christian people, if we're constantly rubbing with the world and non-Christians, we're, we're going to become dull. It's not fruitful. But at the same time, we're, we're not supposed to completely abstain from people that are that are not Christians and build this hut or go to Montana and dig a hole and put fences around our house and get our ARs and, you know, don't let no evil in and no electricity and shoot anybody if they want to come get our food in Jesus' name, you know? That, 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 those are two extremes that are both wrong. Jesus, didn't he find the most... They're rocking in there, boy. We should be... They, 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 they're like, you guys can worship, but let me show you how it's really done. Um, so so we're, we're to reach out to the world. But, but here's the wisdom that God gives us. We, we studied it in detail a couple weeks ago. Do not stand in the counsel of the ungodly. So for the people in your life that you confide in, that you receive advice from, that you, you pour your soul into and your, your souls are knit, for Christian people, that needs to be other Christian people that love God and love you. Now, now we're to have friendships with the world. We're to reach out to the world. You know, you know Jesus was, one of my favorite titles of Jesus was a friend of sinners. That's what they called him. They meant it in in um to be derogatory but it's really a compliment right that he was a wine bibber and glutton and a friend of sinners and so i think for us as christians if we follow jesus example that we'll be a friend of sinners but we it doesn't mean that oh hey i saw you hanging out in the bar the other day oh pastor i just go to the bar and i witness i tell people about jesus and then we go to the strip club afterwards and and i tell them i tell them why jesus loves them and i just want to be in the world and tell people about jesus that's why i'm there Shut up. You're stupid. Just kidding. Um, right? That's not, that's, that's right. That's a little out of balance the other way, right? That's not what Jesus exactly desires. But, but being a friend of the world, being a real Christian, being a real person. This is what the third thing out of the seven that, that this guy compiled in these years of research. It says, non-Christians are saying, I would like to learn about the Bible from a Christian. The Bible really fascinates me, but I don't want to go to a stuffy and legalistic church. Well, then you come to our church because we're, we're not stuffy or legalistic. Church and learn about it. I w- it would be nice if a Christian invited me to study the Bible in his home or at a place like Starbucks. And it would be better if the Christian bought the coffee. I added that last part. but So invite someone to a Bible study. If someone's asking what they know about the Bible, learn about the Bible. And rather than only invite them to church, because we, we're... Well, you can be good at times about inviting people to church, but have we ever thought about in witnessing? Maybe just, you know, somebody who, who won't come to church, but maybe they'll come to your house to with the specific purpose of studying the Bible. Or maybe they'll meet you at Starbucks and, and you can go over and share something out of the Bible with them. And, and the fourth thing they said was, I don't see much difference in the way Christians live compared to others. I can, it says, I really can tell what a Christian's I really can't tell what a Christian believes because he doesn't seem much different than other people I know. The only exception would be the Mormons. They really seem to take their belief seriously. And, and, and you, you uh, honest criticism, right, of, of, of Christians, of some Christianity is that sometimes to the world they look and they don't see any difference in our lives. You know, and, and it's... It is true, and unfortunately for the, the, the Jehovah Witnesses and some of the other isms and schisms and things that are out there, that are, um, they, they work really hard. Unfortunately, what they believe is not true, but they're, and they're working for their salvation, and that's why they're so motivated. But man, I can't tell you how many times, like, it's 15 degrees outside, and, you know, as a group of people that are out in front of the donut shop passing out tracks and trying to tell people what they believe and i'm like i wish some of our christians were out there doing that i wish christians were as disciplined as some of these other people we'd be all right and you guys are home sleeping you know and they're out there why is that you know but to the world now we know we know unfortunately that what they are handing in those those things are just not the truth it's not the gospel it's not reality it's not the jesus that the bible teaches and that that lived historically but to the world it does look like they're, they're separate, and, and that's, I think, an honest criticism. And so how do we live our lives as Christians um, in the world, not of the world, and, and, and not to the point where our, our, our families, our lives, our, everything just looks like the world? You can't tell any difference between your family and the non-Christian family that lives next door to you. They look exactly the same. Finding a way to, to be a little different. Well, here's some better ones. It gets better. Don't, don't punch yourself in the eye just yet. 
Number five, they said, I wish I could learn to be a better husband, wife, dad, or mom, etc. from a Christian. My wife is threatening to divorce me, and I think she means it this time. My neighbor is a Christian, and he seems to have it together. I'm swallowing my pride and asking him to help me. This, this was written in from my neighbor. Um, so in this particular case, this guy has a neighbor, and um, he... He says that it seems like the Christian neighbor has it together and his marriage is good. So that's good, right? That not only they just see bad stuff, they also see, they seem positive in this guy's life. And he said, I'm going to humble myself and I'm going to go ask this guy. I know he's a Christian and I'm going to go ask him for help in my marriage. And then in verse, or verse, no chapter, no. Number six says, some Christians try to act like they have no problems. Well, you don't have to worry about that with me. I'm up front. I got all kinds of problems. I'm married. The Bible says you will find trouble if you marry. Listen to what this person said. Harriet works in my department. She is one of those Christians who seems to have a mask on. I would respect her more if she didn't put it on in such an act. I know better. I know that she's really not that spiritual and that Christian. And to the world, that that hypocrisy of phony, you know, better than than what you really are is just not it's it's not genuine. And it doesn't reach out to people, doesn't touch people. You know, uh, Lydia's mom um, w- one of the things that everybody really loved about her and related to her so much was that she was just a real person. She was just, she was a pastor's wife, a large church and expectations. And some people didn't get her, but she was just herself. She just was herself flaws and strengths and weaknesses. And it's all out there. And this is who I am. And, um, you know, I'm a Christian. I love Jesus and pastor's wife and Bible teacher, but not perfect. And just real genuine, real honest, just about life and who she was. And it was so powerful in her witness to people. And that's what everybody said about her was that she's just so real and so so just just true so the world notices that they don't like that hypocrisy the last thing they said was i wish a christian would take me to his or her church listen this is sad i really would like to visit a church but i'm not particularly comfortable going by myself what is weird is that i'm 32 years old and i have never had a christian invite me to church in my entire life right that christian's never been around diane right she invites everybody she knows the church, Mormons, they don't matter. They just come on church and, um, but it is the reality, 32 years old and never been invited to come to church. So the, the reason why we don't invite is because we, we think people will just reject it all the time. They probably do a lot of the time, most of the time, right? But you keep inviting, you keep inviting, you keep inviting. And the, there's, there's that person out there, 32 years old, never been invited to church. So, all right, just some thought-provoking ideas to to take to your, you know, to witness, to share the gospel, to encourage you and stepping out in faith. And that, you know, you just never know. You just never know. And and again, it doesn't always have to be inviting to church. Maybe it's to your home or out to a social setting to discuss the word of God. All right. You have your Bibles open to um, 1 Peter chapter 4. Okay. We're going to finish the entire chapter today. So I'll speed through. Hang on. The, the title of the message today is Marching Orders. Everybody say Marching Orders. Marching Orders. Hey, you guys see Ty Van's back from Afghanistan? Yeah. Hey, let's welcome him home. Ty Van, love you, brother. Thank you. Welcome home. Hopefully we did it. We did a decent job as your church family of trying to take care of your wife and your kids while you're gone, man. We love you and uh, welcome home. So today's message is called marching orders. So God gives us in the word and he uses a military term to describe some marching orders that the, that the Lord wants to um, give us in this chapter. And that's the title of the message today. So if you keep that in your mind, the marching orders, it'll help you put in context as we go through this chapter. There are, um, there was a general and this particular general was, was leading a group of soldiers into a very fierce and a very deadly battle. And this general stood in front of this group of men and he was, he was um, commanded respect. And, and he was in such a, a leader that, that, that men could follow. And, and, he, and he understood this respect code and, and, and he worked on these men and to the point where they would follow him. And he said to these men, listen, he said, men, we're going to go into some of the most fierce battle and, and fight that we've ever seen in our lives. And the reality is that some of you men in this room are not going to come home, that you're going to die and give your life on that battlefield. But we're going to go out courageously and we're going to charge and I'm going to lead you in this battle and you follow me and I will lead the charge. And some of us will die on that battlefield, but we as a, as a group will have victory. 
and we charge and we go out and you follow me into this battle as I lead you. And for men, we get our chest puffed up when we hear that. And we're like, that's something that, that, that we can follow. That's something that, that we can get behind. This marching order from a general who's going to lead the way, who, who's not going to stand behind and tell us which way to go. He's going to be out front and he's going to do it. And if the first person to die is going to be him as he leads us into battle. And, and Peter says here, in the context of First Peter, which is suffering, the, the book now, as you guys know, is about what? Is about suffering. And in this suffering that Peter is writing in context in the first century, six million Christians were murdered for their faith, martyred for their faith in the, in the first century at the hands of the Roman government, particularly under the leadership of, at the time, the, the, the ruler, Caesar Nero, who was, who was responsible for killing six million Christians in the first century. And this is the group of people that Peter is writing to in this context of suffering. And he says, we have a leader. We have a a general who, who has set the way, who's gone before us, that we can follow. And who is that leader? It says, therefore, in verse 1, since Christ, since Jesus suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves. That's that military term. Arm yourselves. Protect, you know, that's the thing. Again, men, we can get behind that, right? If, if I said, hey, let's go do this and arm yourselves. And we stand in front of the safe and we start sticking guns in our welt belts and around our backs and grenades and whatever we need. And, you know, that, that's an idea that, that we can get. But this is an arming of a different kind. This is a spiritual arming. And he says, arm yourselves also with the same mind for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So we have our general Jesus who suffered even though he didn't deserve to suffer, who suffered in your place and in my place, who's leading the way. And then Peter says in the context of suffering in these marching orders, the first thing that he calls us to do in suffering is to have the mind that Jesus had. Well, that's kind of a lofty idea. That's kind of a, you know, what, what was the mind that Jesus had and have this same mind in you, which was in Christ Jesus, as you, as you face suffering, as you face this life, as you face trials, and I think the first thing for me that I, that I think of when I think of Jesus is this idea that everything that Jesus did was heavenly minded. Everything that Jesus did was a, somebody say big picture. Come on, big picture. We'll just keep doing it until we do it right. Mentality. No, you don't like that word. All right. Big picture mentality. It was a big picture mentality that Jesus had. You know, Jesus said that I only do the things that the father tells me. I only do the things, I'm sorry, that please the Father. How many of you guys raise your hand? If you only do the things that please your Father in heaven, that's all you do. Nobody? Sure. But, but this idea, this is the mind that Jesus had. He was so um, motivated and he had such a big picture mentality. That he lived every day of his life knowing that it was for eternity. It was for heaven and it had, had big picture emphasis. And Peter says, arm yourself with this mind that Christ had. Jesus said over and over again, um, remember when he was 12 years old and he, he went to Jerusalem as was their custom and his family was there and they were in this, this big entourage of people that, that went from, from where they lived to Jerusalem to, to the temple and they're leaving the temple and they're headed back and whatever it was, the 30, 40 miles back to where they were going and, you know, it was like home alone, right? Like, where's Macaulay? What was his name in the movie? Whatever. Huh? Kevin. Where's Kevin? Except for this time was, where's Jesus? And, and, and hey, maybe he's with the cousins. And so they go up a couple of groups in this, in this caravan. And is Jesus with you guys? No, he's not with us. And maybe he's with the neighbors. And they go, and no, Jesus is not here. And they turn this whole caravan around and they go back to Jerusalem. And this is really the only thing the Bible tells us about Jesus' childhood. Once when he was dedicated in the temple as a baby. And then at 12 years old. And then we don't see him again until 33. And they go back and they find Jesus. And where do they find him? They find him in the temple teaching the, the priests. And they're marveling at the wisdom of this young man. And, and it says, his mom says, Jesus, don't you know that your father and I were so anxious about where you were? And that, you know, we were, we were worried to death about you. And Jesus said, why, why would you worry about me? Don't you know that I must be about my father's business? That's, that's 12 years old. I must be about my father's business. 
And that's the mind that Jesus had. And I only do those things that please the Father. And I have a list of seven or eight different verses of Father where Jesus says that same thing. I'm not going to read it to you guys because I'm going to skip a few things in this service to try to make sure we get through in time. But just the things where Jesus did the things that please the Father. So we go on and it says in verse number two that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and the abominable idolatries. So he, he now is reminding us in this, this battle, right? This truth, this reality, not to focus this life on the flesh, and the things that please the flesh. Jesus had this big picture mentality. He had this eternal perspective that, that forced every minute of his life to make good decisions, to make godly decisions, because he only did those things that please the Father. And always in contrast to walking in the Spirit is walking in the flesh. And so Peter then gives us again this reminder that is very common to the New Testament, at least eight different times in the New Testament, where we get these lists and these reminders of these fleshly things to put away in this in this having this mind which was in Christ Jesus and so we don't really need to go through them right verse 3 putting away those things doing the things of Gentiles when you walked in lewdness okay lewdness lust drunkenness revelries drinking parties does that sound familiar to anybody we, we talked about it last week. You know, we talked about last week that, that where do we get this idea? And we went through the Bible where it says, man, I've had a rough week and I, I, I'm stressed out and I just need to let down. And, you know, that, that if I just go to have a couple drinks at my drinking party, then, you know, hang out with some friends. That's the release that I need. And, and it doesn't deliver. We don't, we don't find ourselves any more blessed or any more in a position to be any happier or any less stressed than before. And, and, and Peter laid out last week the things that, that we do in life that are spiritual that really deliver, that, that give you that fulfillment that you need. Lydia shared a story where, you know, she was feeling the same way and just needed a break and was working and, and doing this. And, and, and I needed her to come back. And she had already gone home and drove to Stansbury to drop the kids off. And, and I wanted her to come back and help me do a counseling session. And she didn't want to come back. She was tired. She had the baby. And, and the Lord told her to come back. And um, she was telling herself, man, I just need a break. I just need to go home and call it a day. I'm done, you know. And, but she came back anyways. And God's Holy Spirit totally showed up. She got a word from the Lord for this person, was able to bless him, just felt really excited and, and, and joyful when she left. And she's like, and God just spoke to her. The, that was the week that I was going to preach that sermon. And, and that, you know, the, the things that we look for to find that, that, that release, that spiritual high or that, that joy, it's not in the things of the world. It's not in drinking parties and revelries and lusts and those things. And Peter says, put them away. Abominable idolatries. And in verse 4, it says, In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. So your, your old friends that you ran with before you were a Christian, do you think it's strange that they're speaking evil of you? Does that hurt your little feelings? Huh? You guys upset by that? Get over it. Build a bridge. Get a straw. What else does Terry say? <laughs> Those are my Terryisms, um, but listen, the, the world—they're speaking evil. Peter says that that they speak evil of you because they don't understand why. Because last week you were at the drinking party with them, getting wasted, and this week they call you and invite you to the next drinking party, and you say, "Hey, you know, I'm not going to go." Well, why not? Where are you going to go? Uh, I, I just—I'm serving Jesus now, and, and I'm trying to—you know—I'm walking with the Lord, and that's just not what I want to do anymore. What's wrong with you? You're going to church instead of the party? And then, and then when they get to the party, don't, 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 don't worry about it. They are talking bad about you when they get there. But Peter says, don't, don't trip. You know, the, the world is going to, they're going to, who cares? Like that they're speaking evil of you. And here's the deal. It says they don't get it, right? When, when I became a Christian, I became a Christian at 20 years old. And, and I have um, several friends that, that I was with from, you know, like junior high through high school and then through them several years after high school. And you know, best best friends in the world, went through thick and thin, lots of stuff together, and um, just brothers, real brothers at the time. And when I became a Christian, out of a radical situation at 20 years old, 
um, there was there was this feeling like I, I was responsible to share the gospel with my friends that I that I grew up with, and that who am I just because I became born again that that I I just should you know they they don't know Jesus they're going to go to hell somebody's got to give them the gospel, and it's my responsibility they're my friends. And so I would, I would go and I would try to hang out with them and spend time with them. And, and they just didn't get me. And then because they knew me before, as it says here, they just they didn't understand why I was making the decisions I would. Why I didn't want to drink anymore. Why I didn't want to do this drug or that thing or go here or go to that place anymore. And there was just no fellowship. And, and it just got ugly. And multiple times I found myself compromising, committing some sin of my past while with these guys, with the intention as I went to be loving and, and just be myself and share the gospel with them. Never happened. And then, and then God relieved me of my guilt. And he spoke to my heart and he said, um, he said, listen, you, 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 they, they're not going to get you. That you're not going to find honor within your own hometown as Jesus didn't. Stop going there and hanging out with those guys, but do this. If you'll be um, faithful to, to be a witness to some strangers, to somebody else's Rudy's and Shannon's and Jeff's, then, then I'll bring other Christians into their life that will witness to them and share the gospel with them. And you be faithful to share the gospel over here. And, 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 and you're not effective in that setting. And they don't get you. And stop hanging out and stop going there. When Lydia and I got married three years later, got saved at 20, I got married at 23. Um, you know, there, there was just hands down. Everybody in my life would have just assumed and known who my best man was going to be in my wedding. And he was right next to me my whole life. And I didn't ask him to be the best man of my wedding. And he wasn't a Christian. And he wasn't walking with the Lord. And I had become a Christian. And there was a separation. And I wanted Christian men and people in my life that, that were Christians. And people in my wedding that got me. And um, he got upset. And he didn't show up. And it was hard. It was hard. But, um, but it was right. And again, God gave me a promise for him. I keep praying for him. I keep reaching out to him. I keep loving him. But... They, they, they just, the world's not going to get it. The old, the old people in your life, they're not going to get it. Look, they don't have to get it. Just keep walking on with the Lord and, and just know and pray for him. Know that God's got this, right? <laughs> Excuse me. Verse number five says, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So listen, those people, they're, they're, they're one day going to give an account for themselves, Right? One day they're going to stand in judgment and give account for their own lives. And then it says, for this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to the men in the flesh, but live according to this, according to God in the spirit. Now, verse six can be confusing in if you just read it by itself and as a standalone. Because it says that the gospel was preached to them. And some have taken this to mean or to say that there's a second chance after you die where the gospel gets preached to you and you get a chance at second chance at salvation. And, and that's just not what is in context here. It's not what he's saying. We, we unpacked this last week when we got into Abraham's bosom. But the um, get the tape if you missed it or the CD if you want that teaching. But the, this word gospel, first of all, is not the same word that's used as in preach the gospel. It, it, it means to proclaim truth. Just like when Jesus, before he ascended, the Bible tells us he first descended and set captivity free. The side of Abraham's bosom that was, that was paradise, those were set free. And then it says he went to the other side or the hell side that exists today and he preached to them or he proclaimed truth and we, we unpacked that last week he proclaimed victory in the cross he proclaimed a boundary line for those um, on this side of the cross he, he filled us with his holy spirit and and said he that is in us is greater than he that is in the world but it doesn't teach nor can you you make this say that, that you have a second chance after death the bible says that it's appointed to man once to die and then the judgment it says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And, the, and there are no second chances on the other side of your last breath. You make a decision here on this side of eternity for Jesus Christ. I was driving to church this morning and I was thinking about this verse. And, and I was thinking about this whole idea of second chances. And I know that thought is prevalent among some of the um, religions. And, and it's not biblical. And I thought, you know, the only, only people group that are really going to get kind of a second chance... The Bible does say that in the book, in the end of the, the seven year tribulation, that there's a group of people that are going to go through, going to make it somehow miraculously when two thirds of the world population dies and all the things that happen in those seven year period. But there is a group of people that somehow survive in the flesh 
through the tribulation period and enter into the thousand-year reign of Christ. And for those people, I guess in essence, it would be a second chance. Still on this side of eternity, on this side of breath. And then the Bible says at the end of the thousand years, the last rebellion of Satan and those that lived at peace and lived under the rule and reign of Christ for a thousand years somehow are going to still rebel against the Lord in the end. The Bible talks about a rebellion at the end of that time. But there's no, there's no second chance here. You've you got a choice now. And you've got to get your life and, and make your peace with God on this side of eternity. Amen? Verse 7 says, But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayer. The end of all things? What's Peter talking about? Stinking Christians and their apocalyptic prophecy spouting Jesus coming back, having. Um, one of the things that I'm, I'm very unapologetic about and very, very solid about. And, and, and I often challenge people in this. Now, Peter here says that the end is at hand. What does that mean? What's another way to say that? Jesus is coming back, right? Jesus is coming back. I say it all the time. Jesus is coming back. Now, the entire Old Testament is, is a buildup. For the Jewish people who lived through the Old Testament, there, there was this idea for a young woman that she grew up. You know, like we grow up, our, our young girls, they grow up and they want to be Kim Kardashian. They, they want to be Miley Cyrus. God bless their soul. Right? Unfortunately, that's our society. Like that's what we want our daughters to be, models and things. But anyways, in, in ancient Israel, they grew up and they wanted to be the mother of Messiah. Like it was, it was known. It was a common thing that God was going to bring Messiah. And, and what if I'm the one? And that's the Old Testament is this buildup and the people understand that a Messiah will come. Guess what happened in Bethlehem? Messiah came. Jesus came. 33 years later, he died on a cross, sinless, perfect for your sins and my sins. He conquered sin and death on the cross. And then from that point forward, the entire New Testament, what's the theme? He's coming back. I'll be back. Schwarzenegger didn't even do it justice what Jesus is going to do when he comes back. I'll be back. And, and so as Christians, we don't, we don't, we're, not, we're not apologetic. We don't need to be afraid of the idea. Just challenge somebody if they think that you're fanatical because you believe and you, you understand that Jesus is coming back. Just ask them, hey, just read the New Testament. You, you can do it like real leisure pace. You can read it in 12 weeks. You can read it in 12 minutes or 12 hours, I mean, if you wanted to. But just read the, uh, just take 12 weeks. You do it four times in a year and read through the New Testament four times in a year. And tell me that you won't find hundreds of times and references through the New Testament to the simple fact that Jesus is coming back. Now, that's just what the Bible teaches. And so here Peter says, hey, the end is near. Jesus is coming back. And, and, and yet some of you might say, well, wait a minute. Didn't Peter write this 2000 years ago? And, and Jesus didn't come back for 2000 years. So when he said he was coming back, like, be ready today, you guys. And, and then so you look, you look at the other apostles. You look at the other writers of the New Testament. You know, the Bible is 66 different books, 40 different authors, authors written over a 1,500-year period. No contradictions. The, 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 the greatest work, the greatest book ever written and compiled with no contradictions, all one theme, all one truth. And when we look at truth, we look at the different authors and what they say, and God used them. And you look at Paul, and you know what Paul believed? Paul believed that Jesus would come back in his lifetime. Peter believed Jesus would come back in his lifetime. John believed that Jesus would come back in his lifetime. And all the way through history, from Jesus to today, men and women like you and I have lived with the expectancy that Jesus would come back in our lifetime. It's by design. It's God's will for you to live your life knowing and believing that Jesus can come back. You know, somebody would, would, would mock us because the, you know, Peter tells us, Peter tells us in his epistle that, that in, the, in the last days they will mock you saying, when is the return of his coming? They've been saying it for years and he's not here. And, and yet we have people like D.L. Moody and um, the greats and all the greats of the Bible, Spurgeon and Moody and, and all of these. And they all believe that Jesus would, would come back in their lifetime. And they all died before Jesus came back. Well, shoot, put me in the company of Spurgeon and Moody, Chuck Smith. And, and the Bible says he who has this, this heart in him purifies himself. Because if you believe that Jesus could come back today and is going to come back in your lifetime and soon, then you live a different way. But if you're thinking, ah, eh, he's going to come back, but I'm not fanatical. It could be 10 years, 100 years, not in my lifetime for sure. And you can live your life however you want. You can live each day how you want, knowing that, that, that the Lord cannot come back at any moment. But if you really believe, you really live your life like Jesus could come back tonight, it might change how you live tonight. 
that's what the Bible says. It purifies how you live. It purifies your life. And it's biblical. And then we get um, this, this discourse that Jesus gave on a mountain recorded for us in Matthew 24 called the Olivet Discourse, where, praise God, the disciples just came and asked Jesus as simple and as plain to, as, as, as it can get, Jesus, when are you coming back, dude? He's like, all right, all right, fine. I knew that was going to come up. Let's, let's talk about it. And Jesus lays out in Matthew 24 the things to look for at his return. And, and those are the things that we're just seeing happen right before our very eyes today. I mean, when Russia and Turkey and Iran are in cahoots and they're in Syria, teaming up together in Syria, and they're on the border of Israel, I mean, that's a, that's a 2,000, 2,500-year-old prophecy that we're watching happen right before our very eyes. And so... Just living with that expectancy. And then as we look at the labor pains, and that's what Jesus said, there'd be labor pains. And yes, there's always been labor pains. And yes, it has always been God's heart that his people live with the expectancy that he would come back. But don't let that, for those of us who live in these last days, be an excuse not to live with the ready, readiness and expectancy that, that we are living. And we are seeing birth pains um, closer and closer together and more intense in frequency and more intense in pain. And then he says in verse 8, he says, And above all these things, have fervent love one for another. What? Where's this crazy idea? This is like left field, right? No, it's not left field, right? It's not a new idea or a new concept. But right in the middle of all this, again, another another writer of the the Bible reminds you and I that in in this call, in this general's call, these marching orders that were to love one another. He says, for love covers a multitude of sins. So, you know what's so cool? God doesn't expect you to be perfect. God does not expect perfection in your life. He expects love. He expects you to love fervently because love covers a multitude of sins. It covers a multitude of weaknesses and and lapses in your life. And the cool thing about the Christian life and Christian living is, man, I don't have to be a perfect Christian, have perfect doctrine, be a Bible apologist and, you know, have Ravi Zacharias answers to everybody's questions. Because if I just love people, I'll pray. If I just love people, I'll I'll naturally do things that that God wants us to do. Now, the second part of seven that I, I... skipped over that fits this it says therefore listen be serious and watchful in your prayers therefore have love so the first thing was a was a call that jesus is coming be watchful and serious in your prayers is it strange for us as christians that we should be a people who pray now he says be serious in your prayers for some of us oftentimes we pray like you know as we're getting as we're laying down on the bed we've already laid down and we're like lord Bless everyone in this whole wide world. Lord, save all the little children and make everybody go to hell. You know, as we pass out. Is that serious in your prayers? Is, is that what, what the Bible describes here as a marching order for you in your prayers? And, and I think for all of us, you guys, we, um, myself included, it's just an area we could, we could really seek the Lord in and we can grow in and that we need to be dedicated. We tried to make some practical things for us as a church and challenges and, you know, build the prayer room, literally build a, a war room in your house. That, that, and I did. We built one. I haven't gone in it yet, but, um, but I built it. I still pray in my room and um, but this call for us as Christian people that we need to be a people that's marked by prayer. And if, you, if you're a Christian, if you call yourself a Christian, if you consider yourself born again, listen, find some time in your life. Find some time in your week. Set aside some time to pray. Well, I don't know how to pray. Well, how do you learn how to do anything? You practice. You do it. You, you get in there and do it. And God's Spirit does it anyways. Don't even trip. All you got to do is show up and He'll do it for you. He'll do it in you. He'll do it through you. God's Holy Spirit, you don't get any credit anyways if it's really good. You come out like, honey, oh, you should have spirit showed up. You should have seen me praying. Like, I'm so spiritual. You should have heard the things that were coming. No, don't shut up. It's not you. It's God. He just did it. So, but, but if you get in the habit, and, and the whole call, again, serious. Be serious. What does it say at the end of verse 7? Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And so just to call in this, in this marching orders and then to love. Now, if we don't have this great prayer life, and, and we, but we do focus on the, the main call for you as a Christian person is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself, 
then if I really love my neighbor, like if I really am passionate about my neighbor, what's it going to force me to do? Pray for him, right? That's, that's, the, that's the one that's going to make me do those other things and be in prayer for my neighbor. And so, um, so loving first. And then he says in verse 9, now this is Chinese, so I'm going to have to interpret this for you. You guys ready? Verse 9. It says, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. Not Chinese. It's English. Very easy. Did you know that you as a Christian person are called to be nice to people? Is that like revelation for you? You know, so many Christians, they, they always tell me, oh, I, just don't, I give them a piece of my mind, you know, and they, we want to go around giving everybody a piece of our mind. And I've told you a hundred times, like, don't do that. You don't have that much to give out or go around. You might want to keep what you have and, and don't be angry and grumpy. And, you know, as Christian people, it's not, it shouldn't be odd that, that God just tells us very simply, be nice, be hospitable. Listen to what it says in verse 10. As each one has received a gift, minister to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Be hospitable, reaching out. Where does, and then in verse 10, when he says, you've received a gift, minister it to who? Verse 10. So, so come to church and just that stinking pastor better minister to you and bless you, bless you, bless you. Because that's the, the, the design that God set up for the body of Christ. And the worship better be good. And good thing they played that unstoppable God in the right key. And then Marty was ripping on the, on the guitar, right? Because they better bless me, bless me, bless me. But listen, the call of God in the word is for you guys to bless each other. You know, you know why you should come to church? So you can just love on somebody, man, and just bless somebody and just make somebody's day and find somebody to reach out to. And, 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 and God has given every one of you a gift. And, man, I get to take this gift and give it away today. I get to use this gift that God has given me. Now, look, look at verse 10. Now, this is not me. This is the Lord, right? It says, who receives the gift in verse 10? Who? Everyone. Everyone. Are you sure? Because if I'm just going off what you guys tell me, like, oh, I don't got no gifts for the Lord. I don't can't do ministry. I'm not the pastor or the sound guy or the worship leader. What am I going to do for the Lord? Well, the word of God says that each one of you have a gift. Each one of you has been given a gift. And then look, check it out. God always lets us off the hook. I love it. He says to each one receives a gift. Minister to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. Now that part's a little intimidating. Like I speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it with the, listen, the ability which God supplies. God supplies the ability. You don't get credit for it anyways. It's not because it's not in your talent or because of your talent. God can use you whether you think you're talented or not because he's already told you that every one of you have a gift. He wants you to minister across the aisles, love people across the aisles, and that each one minister according to the ability that God gives you. Do you know what's consistent throughout the whole Bible? God doesn't find um, men that are very capable and very talented and use them. It's quite the opposite, right? You think of the mighty man of valor. Now, for me, um, if, if God says, this is my servant, Chris, and all you guys are all listening, and he says, he's a mighty man of valor. Like, my buttons are going to bust out on my shirt, right? Like, God just said, I'm a mighty man of valor. Like, what, how, how, how cool is that? That, that, that a mighty man of valor, and you guys, I'm thinking like, yeah, they're all afraid of me now. God just told them how mighty and, you know, and, and a man, you think of a sword and a, and, and. The mighty man of valor in the Bible is a guy named Gideon. Do you know where he was when God found him, when God called him? He was hiding in a wine press, threshing wheat. Now, you throw the wheat up in the air, and the wind catches the chaff and blows it off, and the wheat's heavier, and so it drops back down to the ground. And so you thresh the wheat on the top of a mountain where the wind can blow it. But he was hiding from the Midianites because the Midianites were coming through and beating up the Israelites and taking the wheat that they were threshing. So Gideon is hiding in a wine press. And if there's no wind in the wine press, how is he separating the chaff from the wheat? He's throwing it in the air and he's blowing it. And then the Bible says that one of his knees was smoting the other. So he's like, looking around for the Midianites to come and beat him up. And God shows up and says, Gideon, mighty man of valor. He's probably looking around like, you're not talking to me. And yet God, that, that's the guy God wanted. That was the mighty man of valor. 
Because God was going to do the work. And God is looking for people that when he does the work, he receives the glory. And he's looking for people that, when, that he can use that, that, are, that are pliable and moldable and know they need God's help. And so if you know you need God's help, if you know you're not talented, if you know you don't have it, just show up. God's already called you a mighty man of valor. He's already given you the gifts that you need. And he's the one that's going to supply the ability. And so minister across the aisles. Find somewhere to serve. Find somewhere to step out in the Lord. Trust the Lord in that it's God who calls. It's God who supplies. I think of Mary who um, has just stepped out in faith to start helping Lydia and teaching the women's Bible study. And is doing an amazing job. And again, nervous going into it and just said, I just want to step out in faith and see what God has. Jason and Allie who have just stepped up and started teaching the youth group. And God is doing amazing things through their ministry and, and just stepping out in faith. And Jason's never taught publicly. Mary's never taught publicly. It's intimidating. But they took a gift that God gave and they just said, hey, I'm going to give it to God. And God's shown up and done really cool stuff in, in both of those areas of ministry. And so just stepping out. It's not you anyways not about you. We're going to get to that in a minute. I'm going to offend you at the end of the sermon. If I haven't already. But, um, so verse number 11 says, we got through 11. I'm going to read it again. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. It's God who receives the glory. To whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Yes, God is a glory hog. Get over it. You're not going to get any of his glory. You don't deserve it. And in verse 12 says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing had happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. There's that word again. Peter likes that word. That when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceedingly joy. You guys want to try that? It's kind of fun. Exceeding joy. Only the fun people actually did it. (laughs) The rest of you people are not invited to my party. Just kidding. Um, I guess you got every party has to have a pooper, huh? So, um, the the Bible takes everything and turns it on its head that the world teaches and preaches. And the the concept or the idea through first Peter that's been consistent. I know I sound like a, I don't know why I always feel I got to apologize because I sound like a, like a broken record, but it's not me. We're just, again, we're in a, in a place and we're just covering what it says. And yes, it's very similar to something we've already studied and something Peter already said, but it takes this idea of suffering and exceeding joy and puts them together. That is not something that any of us put together in the flesh or in the world. And yet the Bible talks about it, that that they go together, that there should be a joy, that suffering is a part of life, that suffering is a reality of life and finding a way. How cool would it be as we suffer to live our lives in such a way that we experience exceeding joy? You know, the the Bible says um, in turning things upside down, right? It's not a new concept. If you want to be first in the kingdom of God, if you're a Christian here today, how do you do that? You become last. Completely contrary to what the world says. If you want to be the greatest in the kingdom of God, how do you how do you accomplish that? You rise to the top. No matter who you step on on the way there, I'm going to the top. I want to be the greatest. How do you become the greatest in the kingdom of God? You learn to become the servant of all. How, how do you become the greatest in the kingdom of God? Jesus said, how do you enter the kingdom of God? Jesus said, you work hard and you 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 teach other people and you set examples and you lead the way. No, Jesus said, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you have to become like a little child. Jesus said, how do you find your life in Christ? Well, you guys are crazy with all this nonsense. First, last, lose, find, great servant. But that, that's the gospel, right? That's the Lord Jesus. He takes these things and he turns them upside down on their head. And he says that if you want to find your life, you have to lose it. And here, he, again, Peter puts this concept together of exceeding joy with this idea of suffering. And don't think it's strange concerning fiery trials, which is to try you as though some strange thing is happening to you. I, I, would, I would venture to say that at times, that's often how we, we react when we face various trials. That it's some strange thing that only we deal with and poor me and woe, woe is me. And, and, then, and then you allow and you open the door for Satan to come and lie to you and tell you that God's mad at you, that God is picking on you that God is not protecting you, that God is not watching you, that God is not hearing your prayers, all lies, when the Word of God tells us something exactly different. And then look, look at what it says. 
It's very important that you guys read these scriptures as we go through, right? And follow along and let the Holy Spirit speak to you. In verse 14, it says, If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you for the spirit of glory and of God's rest upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. So if you are reproached for the name of Christ, not if you're reproached because you're a freak, not if you're reproached because you're that angry Christian on the street corner with a sign that says God hates fags. Promise you Jesus wouldn't act that way, nor would he ever hold that sign. But, but you're, you're not being reproached, or if you're being reproached, Peter draws a line in the sand. And he says, listen, Christian, don't, don't get it twisted. Don't think that you, you can just live however you want, act however you want. And every time you face something negative in your life, it's because of your Christianity and you're being persecuted and joy, joy. No, there, there's, a, there's a difference. If you're being persecuted for Christ's sake and in righteousness and not as a result of sin and not as a result of, of unrighteousness or unholiness in your life, that, that you're being persecuted for Christ's sake. So, um, you know, it's like, and it's true, but I hear stories and it breaks my heart. And I know it doesn't represent all of us, but unfortunately there is a little bit of a stigmatism, right? Even in that list that I read as we started this morning around Christians. And, and you know, I know Christian business owners. And I'm not going to say any names. You know some of these Christian business owners that I know. And, and the, the worst people to deal with in their business are Christians. Number one, because every Christian that comes into their business, sees them at church, knows they're at church, knows they're a leader at church and own a business and want everything for free. Oh, I'm a Christian. You should do it for free. Dude, what world do you live in? I got to eat. Oh, you're rich. You own a business. That's just not the way it works. And, 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 then, and then I have other stories where they don't hire Christian people because the Christians who come and work, you know, they, they won't work hard. Oh, and then when you challenge them or you call them out and say, oh, I was having Bible study, brother. Well, you're fired. So now you can have all the Bible study you want somewhere else. But I hired you to work hard. And to be an example of Jesus and have integrity in what you do as a Christian person and not expect everything for free because we're both brothers in Christ. And there is that, you know, that we got to guard that. And the Bible told us we talked to we worked it through in the in the other in the other epistle that, you know, as Christians, one of our things has to be we got to work hard and not take advantage of other Christians because we're Christians and not expect everything free because we're other Christians. And then say, oh, I got fired because of my Christianity and because I brought Jesus to work and they fired me. No, you got fired because you wouldn't come back from your break so you could sit in the break room and pray for people and read your Bible for an extra 20 minutes. And they fired you because you cheated them out of two hours a week by the time it was over. And that's not, there's a difference, right? And it goes on and it says, um, if it, yet, in verse 16, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify in this matter. So then he encourages you and he says, yes, we are, we will suffer as Christians. And there's times. You know, um, didn't, you know, we'll face it. We'll face it here in the, in the community that we live in, that, that we're just not accepted. We'll face some social persecution. Now, obviously, right, Christians are being murdered. Do you realize, you know, we, six million Christians died in the first century. We, we far surpassed that number in the day we live in now. And that for the first time, you know, in the Christian, that the martyrs that in the world today is, is greater than any other time in human history. More Christians are being martyred for their faith today and in this, this world that we live in than ever before. And yet you say, well, that's not happening in Tooele. No, it's not. None of you today are going to die or suffer for your faith that way. But go ahead and get your Christian Jesus t-shirt on your Bible and head down to, you know, head down to downtown Saudi Arabia, downtown Tehran, and downtown Mecca and see what happens. They'll give you a diet from your neck up. Lose all that weight. And, and, and you know, with, with ISIS, they're, they're murdering. We don't, we don't face that kind of persecution, but in the things that you do face as a Christian, in the things that you will... Um, I know it's kind of sad to have to compare these. I'm feeling like... It's sad. Not, not that I want persecution for us in that way. Although sometimes in persecution, God, we grow. Maybe if we had a little more persecution here in the West, maybe the church would grow. It's like the, the, the Bible study in Russia. And it was very illegal to have a Bible study. And, and people also would be murdered there or killed or martyred there for their faith if they would study the Bible together. And, and they're having a Bible study, a secret Bible study hiding in this room. Next thing they know, the doors get kicked, get kicked in and four Russian soldiers come in with their guns. 
And they say, all right, whoever's not a real Christian, you can, you can leave. But the real Christians, are, you're going to die today. And a bunch of people get up and leave. And Russian soldiers put their guns down. They say, all right, now let's have a Bible study with some real Christians. And they, they get out their Bibles. And, um, you know, persecution makes the church grow. But we're not facing that level of persecution here. But when we do, and what you do, it says here, the persecution you face, which you will, I'm not diminishing because you're not being killed for your faith, saying that it's not important or that you're not suffering in that way, because we will. We do. My family does, especially here. That, that it, when you do it for Christ's sake, just be encouraged. Be blessed. Know that there's a, there's, a, there's a victory. There's a reward. There's a blessing. God's got your back. He sees it. He'll bless you for it. There's a big picture mentality. And then he says... Um, Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the what? The what? Suffer according to... No, no, no. Something wrong with my Bible? What does your guys' Bible say? Suffer according to the what? Commit their souls to him in doing good as a faithful creator. Does that mean that it's God's will that you suffer? kind of church is this come back next week i'm gonna have a better message for you guys you'll be happy healthy and wealthy jesus i love you and you'll be david in the story and you know in the world listen here's the reality it, god uses suffering in your life to build character god allows suffering in your life to to build strength and if you'll allow that suffering and you'll bless his name no matter what, if you'll give him glory and praise and you'll receive it and you'll let it flow through you, God will use that for you to bless somebody else and help somebody else and serve somebody else someday. If you'll receive that and, and know that, that God allows it and that sometimes we suffer, as it says here, according to the will of God. You, you know what? In our world, we live in a world where... Um, we, we want to make everything better and we want to compete commercially, right? And so like 3M, 3M doesn't make any of their own products, right? They just take all the products everybody else makes and they make them better. That's their whole thing, right? And so, you know, the, the world is that way. We, we get it, we, you know, everybody wants a Rolex, but you can't afford a Rolex. So Timex comes up with this kind of hand that looks like it's rolling, but it's a Timex and it's cheaper and it's more, and we, we get them and the companies compete for prices and, you know, and we want something that's less hassle and less trouble. And so we're constantly shopping around for the latest, greatest. Now they got the vacuum, right? That you don't even have to push it anymore. It just does its own thing. It's a little robot and, you know, hassle free. And, and that's the way that we live. And it's a good thing in the, in the commercial world. But what's happened is the church is kind of um, adopted that same idea to compete for sheep or to, to reach out to people. And they want to make church trouble free. And so they want to make these messages and this, and then where, where there's the, the, this message of suffering that Peter teaches that, 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 that sometimes we do suffer at the hand of God. You'll never hear it. And, and, and it's competing with, with, with the next, the next. And so you go and the message is, you know, that you're David and you're the hero in the story and you defeat Goliath in your spiritual strength that you are. Well, here, I got news for you. You're not David. Your, your Goliath is not in your life. You're not the hero in the story. The Bible is not about you. You offended yet? Jesus is the greater David. Jesus is the greater Noah. Jesus is the greater Moses. Jesus is the hero in the Bible, not us. And, and unfortunately, that's the watered down message that's going out today. But Jesus is the hero. And yes, he loves you amazingly. He's called you to lofty and high things. And we, we tell you all the time, remind you of the wonderful place that you are and you have in Christ. But Jesus is the hero. You know who we are in the David and Goliath story? We're the, the scared Israelites that were in the background, like Gideon. Thank you, David, for going up and fighting that guy because I didn't have enough courage to do it. And thank you, Jesus, for dying on a cross for me because... That's what I deserve. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And we're, that, that's who we are in the story. And that's just the reality. And in that, God is going to and can and will allow suffering in our life to build character in you. Receive it. Allow it. Find some crazy way to have exceedingly joy through it. And, and just know that God is with you no matter what. Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego were not allowed or not kept from the fire. They were allowed to go in the fire. But what happened? Jesus went with them, right? Amen? Amen. Let's stand. Thank you guys again for your patience.
Love you guys. Let's pray. I want to just encourage you, as we always do. You know, I, I really believe that that on Sunday mornings that it's important because I don't know who's here. I don't know where your spiritual walk is, where your life is. And maybe you, you came this morning in a part, and we could have gave this altar call before the message, before the worship, because you came this morning wanting to, to get your life and your heart right with the Lord Jesus Christ. So we want to give you that opportunity today. We want to give you an opportunity to pray and, and, and make peace with God. Make sure that you're born again. Make sure that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life and that you know that you know you know that if you die today, you'd go home to be with the Lord Jesus. So I want to pray. I often ask that the whole church pray out loud so, so that anybody who's praying that genuinely can feel comfortable. But let's close our eyes and bow our heads. And if that's, that's you today and you, you want to get your heart and right, life right with the Lord Jesus, I want you just to raise your hand up and you can put it right back down. Let's have the worship team come on up and close us in a song. Is there anybody in here today that wants to ask Jesus in their heart for the first time? Rededicate their life to the Lord? Let's pray together as a, as a church. Lord Jesus, please come into my heart. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Forgive me of my sins. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me pray for you guys. Father, we thank you. We praise you, Lord Jesus. Lord, I thank you for the message of 1 Peter chapter 4 that's powerful, that Lord just starts that, that we should have this mind in us, which was in Christ Jesus. And Lord, give us that mind that was in Christ Jesus. Give us a heart, Lord, that loves you and serves you and knows you. And Lord, I pray, Father, that, that we, would, we would be committed to prayer. We'd be serious about prayer. Lord, that we would have joy and be kind to people and just be nice, Lord, and love fervently one another across the aisles. Lord, that when we do suffer persecution for righteousness sake, that we would find exceeding joy in that. And that, Lord, that, that you would use us and that you, would, that, that you do use suffering in this life, God, to teach us and to train us and mold us. And Lord, we thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.